Welcome to Share Public Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center's podcast connecting you to public health topics, issues, and colleagues throughout our region and the country, highlighting that we all share in public health. Thank you for tuning in to this 10-part series on health equity. Over the course of this series, we will discuss a broad range of topics connected to health equity. For additional resources and information, be sure to check the podcast notes or visit mphtc.org slash health equity. I'm Paul Gilbert, and my pronouns are he, him, and his. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Community and Behavioral Health at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Today, I'll be serving as host of our podcast episode devoted to sexual and gender minority health. We'll be focusing on issues relevant to lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and gender diverse and queer individuals under this podcast series, general theme of health equity. I'm joined in this conversation by Dr. Katie Mborek and Max Mowitz. Dr. Mborek, whose pronouns are she, her, and hers, is a family medicine physician, clinical associate professor, and director of offsite primary care at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. She was a co-founder of the first clinic in Iowa specifically dedicated to serving sexual and gender minority patients, which is still going strong at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics system. It has even expanded since its establishment in 2012. Max, whose pronouns are they, them, and theirs, is a program director for One Iowa, which is a statewide nonprofit organization. One Iowa takes as its mission to improve the lives of LGBTQ Iowans by advancing equality and inclusiveness. Some of One Iowa's action areas are focused on healthcare access, workplace culture, and a leadership institute to develop LGBTQ community capacity, among others. Max and Dr. Mborek, welcome. Now, as I was thinking about today's discussion, I realized that I wanted to answer three overarching questions. Who exactly are we talking about? What are the health-related issues we need to be aware of? And what actions can we take to ensure health equity? And by using we, I mean a diverse group of people who may be engaged in various ways as part of the public health or healthcare workforce, as well as community members at large. So let's start by considering who we're talking about. And I've already used a couple of terms, sexual and gender minorities and LGBTQ people, and it's probably worth sorting out what we mean by each one. So would either of you like to help define these terms and the populations that they refer to? Um, yeah, I'd be uh, happy to, to speak a little bit uh, about the LGBTQ acronym. Um, I'm Max Moitz, um, and um, part of my work at One Iowa in includes uh, training LGBTQ uh, folks and allies in the state about what the community looks like. Um, but um, LGBTQ is actually an acronym that describes two different things. It describes um, sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, and sometimes people get that a, a little bit confused because um, they think that all LGBTQ people are gay, for example, or um, things like that. So sometimes people can get confused and it's actually really important to understand the distinction between sexual orientation and gender identity because uh, legally, those are things we have to pay attention to because usually they're protected legally um, uh, under the name of sexual orientation and gender identity. So um, plainly put, um, the LGBTQ community describes people that identify as lesbian, L, gay, G, bisexual, B, 
uh, transgender or trans, T, and then Q describes people that identify as queer or questioning. Um, I'm not sure how into how much detail you'd like to get on each one of those identifiers, um, but it can be helpful to also think of them in two separate groups. So uh, lesbian, gay, and bisexual people are people um, that, uh, those are all descri uh, descriptors of um, sexual orientation, right? So the people that you're attracted to. Um, whereas when we're talking about the trans community, that describes gender identity, um, which is who you are, right? So you can be both trans and bisexual, for example, um, but uh, they're, you know, the whole LGBTQ community doesn't identify as the exact same thing, for example. Yeah, and Paul, this is Katie, um, and I would just add in there, um, because I know that as I've done a lot of lectures and been speaking to students um, and medical residents or medical faculty or staff members, that one question that always comes up is around the Q in, in queer. Um, and in our LGBTQ clinic, just like Max had described, we kind of have two cues, both queer and questioning. And when we first opened, we would often get folks who were commenting or who were sending us emails or they were quite alarmed because they felt like the article that was written got it wrong because they said that 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 the cue stood for for queer and surely we would not want that word used um, because they felt like it was still quite derogatory um, and while that is the case for some folks even of the community i think that that claim has been largely reclaimed by a lot of um, people in the younger generation within the community and it is in its truest sense an umbrella term that could describe anyone who is a gender or sexual minority. Um, and so that is the one that, that I think can somewhat kind of cross lines between sexual orientation as well as gender, gender identity, which in some ways makes it confusing and in other ways makes it quite liberating. I, I, I who live in the world of electronic medical records where we have a lot of check boxes that we need to click and not a lot of free text lines, I think um, identifying as queer is, uh, is kind of the ability to sort of say, fine, I'll give you a label without really telling you what that label means because it can mean anything to anyone who identifies as kind of a gender or sexual minority person. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you mentioned that. I've heard that the I guess different attitudes towards that word queer. I've heard about that before, and it's almost like a uh, generational difference. Maybe some folks who grew up with it being used as a slur and really insulting don't like it, and then younger generations seem to have embraced that as reclaiming the term and empowering. And but I think the intent is is to be more of a inclusive and umbrella term a lot of times. So thanks. You know, a follow up question that occurred to me is: Are there any other terms or identities or words that we should be on the lookout for. You know, one that I've heard thinking about other groups that may identify differently is same gender loving among African American, at least men, that's where I've heard it. Um, but anything else that we should be on the, the lookout for, or be able to recognize as like, aha, you fit under this broad umbrella of, of sexual and gender minority. Well, I think that there are a lot of 
um, terms that are left off of the LGBTQ acronym that really are just as important um, as LGBTQ. Um, but one thing that I think a lot about, and uh, the conversation about the word queer makes me think of this, but something that I always recommend people think about is, um, especially if you're feeling overwhelmed by all of the different words and terms, or you're very uh, uh, hesitant to use the word queer, for example, because you don't know how a person's going to respond to it, something I recommend is listening for the language that people use about themselves and just mirroring it back to them. So we could go through quite a long list of different identifiers today and we might miss one. And uh, But if you're doing that um, really intentional listening and uh, you're mirroring back the language people use for themselves, be it like queer or lesbian or intersex, for example, um, those are all going to be um, really important to pay attention to so you know how to address someone. And so it's uh, really great to have that as a tool um, that um, really paying attention to how someone refers to themselves because that way you don't necessarily have to know all of the different um, identities that you might interact with. You just have to know about the identity of the person sitting in front of you. Um, and that can be um, a really good way to make sure that you're using um, language that uh, fits them and makes them feel comfortable too. That's a really good point. Thank you. Now, I have another uh, question. Thinking back to the introductions that I just recently gave, why did I mention the pronouns that we use? Why, why is that important? Would anyone like to answer that? I have one. Um, this is Katie. I have one story that I often think about um, with regards to pronouns, especially when working uh, in a medical context with, with people and how working with folks who may identify under a trans umbrella um, oftentimes have experiences either personally or they know of experiences um, with some of their friends or family or peers where they've been discriminated against in a healthcare setting and because of this, we know that that's one of the reasons that they may not access healthcare quite as much as their cisgender or non-transgender counterparts would. And so this story is when I was in a focus group um, that was specifically looking at uh, how different organizations that care for um, survivors of sexual assault specifically try to be inclusive of folks who are transgender or non-binary. And one of the groups broke up and wrote on the whiteboard and they drew a picture of the University of Iowa hospitals and clinics and they drew barbed wires surrounding that. Mm -hmm. And it was such a poignant example of how people feel like, like they have to potentially walk through barbed wire fences that 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 almost physically while often you know clearly emotionally harms them just to receive health care and that's not because they didn't receive you know competent medically competent care from their providers that's because they were misgendered that's because they were used names that weren't the names that that they refer to themselves as that's because they were used pronouns that don't align with their own identity and so when I think about 
some of the things that we can do to really create an environment that's affirming and respectful of all of our patients. I think that using, using the names and the pronouns that most align with people's identity is such a very small step that we can do that can really make a big difference in terms of reaching our hands out and saying, this is a place where we respect you and your humanity and that you can trust us to really care for you well. Thank you for sharing that story. You know, I uh, approach it too always uh, with the intention of telegraphing or signaling that I'm gonna be attentive or in this group, in this meeting or wherever I am, that our organization is gonna be att attentive to you know, addressing people correctly. Um, so I'll put forward first, you know, the pronouns I use and it doesn't have to be a big deal. Just say my pronouns are he, him and his. Uh, it's just matter of fact. Um, but I hope it does telegraph that sort of sensitivity. So I maybe getting ahead of ourselves thinking about action steps, but it could be something that, uh, you know, folks could do in their own organizations in their work and wherever uh, to help set the tone, I guess. Well, and, um, you know, just in case, uh, I think that um, most of us learned what like a pronoun was in like maybe sixth or seventh grade grammar, which it's been a little while since I've been in that class. Um, but it's uh, really just how you refer to a person in a sentence without using their name. So like we mentioned our pronouns this uh, just earlier in the uh, program. So of course, um, she, her and hers uh, he, him, and his are going to be pronouns you interact with a lot, and usually uh, those are what a lot of people think are the only two pronouns, but uh, we know more and more that there are more pronouns that we can use to refer to people um, that don't identify as men or women, or for whom um, she, her, her, and he, him, his uh, really don't tell the story, um, and so uh, those pronouns that you might interact with are those like, my pronouns are they, them, and theirs, um, they being the singular they, um, you might also interact with pronouns like the, uh, their and theirs or z, z or zers. Um, there's quite a few. Um, and that's another time when that mirroring of like how people refer to themselves is really helpful. But also if you're doing exactly what you said and uh, introducing yourself with your pronouns and asking for someone's name and pronouns, it means that you'll always know, um, what that person uses and, um, uh, it's just the best practice that way you can refer to people correctly because pronouns are just as essential as somebody's name, for example. Um, so that's how I like to think about it. Great, thank you. Now, I wonder if we could maybe switch topics a bit, moving from the question of who we're talking about to thinking about what concerns that they have. And, you know, our focus is health and healthcare and the well being. Um, and working to promote good health for sexual and gender minority people. So I wonder if it may be helpful first to recall a, a definition, and I happen to like the World Health Organization's definition of health. The WHO says that health is a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, that it's not simply the absence of disease. So keeping that more comprehensive, holistic definition in mind, what do you think are the most pressing health concerns for sexual and gender minority populations in the Midwest? This is Katie. Um, so I, 
largely work with um, with folks who identify as transgender or non-binary. Um, and so a lot of kind of what I'm passionate about or a lot of what I sort of feel are high priority is definitely colored just by um, by kind of the 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 slice of folks that that I see and knowing that um, that of LGBTQ folks, many of my patients do identify as non cisgender. And so amongst people who are trans and non binary. Um, much of much of what I would say um, has been an issue over and over again for them um, would be around their mental health, which I think is directly related for many of them just to gender dysphoria and that interplay between those two. And it specifically has to do with the fact that they oftentimes cannot access some of the medically necessary procedures or treatments that they need to adequately treat their dysphoria. Um, and so those would be things that are often not covered by their insurance, either a private insurance um, or if they have state-funded Medicaid. And so this would be something like, um, like top surgery or male chest reconstruction for someone who identifies as a transgender masculine person. Um, or facial feminization or bottom surgery like a vulva or vaginoplasty for someone who identifies as a transgender feminine person. Um, and so what I what I what I have definitely seen, you know, and specific to the state of Iowa, where we had where the um, state Supreme Court unanimously ruled that Iowa Medicaid um, needed to provide coverage for those surgeries. And then when, before even paying for one of the procedures, um, our legislators kind of wrote that into a health and human services budget bill, and then did not um, kind of gave Medicaid a loophole where they didn't have to pay for those. I definitely saw a really intense uptake of mental health issues at that time because patients, when they did at one time have kind of this little bit of hope, then that was kind of, they felt like the rug had been pulled out from underneath them. Um, and so, so all of that being said, I mean, I would say that mental health concerns, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, substance use, that, that, that many of those are, I think, some of the most concerning things um, that I see and some of the most disparate things that I see in medical practice around the transgender and non-binary communities. And you know, I, I think it's worth noting that it's not that you have poor mental health or have these other concerns because you are transgender, queer, whatever. It, it's more the, the stresses, the discrimination, the day-to-day -day experiences that grind away at you that that's part of this sort of chain of causation. It's not, you know, transgender folks ipso facto are, you know, have, have mental health problems, but it's because of the social response, the discrimination and so on. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely so. So yeah, so kind of your classic minority stress theory um, and that there's just all of these levels of, of 
you know, systemic injustice and discrimination that just from, from things like having a challenging time with employment, either keeping that job, especially mm-hmm. after they might have transitioned or going out and getting a job, if they, you know, if they do identify as trans or as non-binary, um, to housing, to public, public, uh, public accommodations, to healthcare, to then, you know, feeling like at times that they may be estranged from friends or family or from their um, their place of worship, whatever that that might be, those are the things that day after day really lead to some of those mental health problems. It's not that 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 just because someone identifies as trans or as non non-binary or as LGBTQ that that then means that that causes any of that mental health. It's really kind of their experience living in in a world that that treats them as somewhat less than. Max, since you do so much around the whole state of Iowa, I wonder if you've anything, um, any other perspectives to add on top concerns or priorities? Uh, Yeah, I think that there are a couple of areas that I see the most. And um, so one of my, uh, the parts of my role is that I get to act as a community health worker at the LGBTQ clinic at Unity Point here in Des Moines. Um, And so that means that I meet with folks after they meet with a physician um, and see what kind of wraparound services they might need. Um, And one of the things that um, I get overwhelmingly also in emails and phone calls from folks around the state um, is a a huge part, uh, and we've kind of touched on it already, is social isolation and the feeling that you're very, very alone. Um, And so often the resource that people really need that I can't find for them um, and that are um, consistently not being met uh, is uh, social support and other meeting other LGBTQ people, especially if somebody is trans or transgender. Um, That is one of the areas that I see the most need. um, And it's one of the uh, things that is hardest to find because it does take so much community support um, and community growth. Um, and if you are in you know, certain parts like Northwest Iowa, you might have to drive an hour and a half to go to a trans support group, for example. Um, even here in the city of Des Moines, um, we have uh, quite a few different options and still those options are always full and there's constant demand and need. And so um, that community support, um, that reaching out and and being able to interact with other individuals that understand that shared experience of being LGBT, specifically trans for sure, um, that is absolutely um, paramount. And it's one of those, one of the biggest barriers to some of uh, those um, positive, um, like, mental health outcomes, for example, uh, because of that isolation. Um, Especially if you're estranged from your family or your friends after you come out, you may have had to move from a more rural part of the state to a less rural part of the state to be able to come out safely. Um, It's just that social support that's so important, of course, on top of the um, most basic needs um, and mental and physical health needs. Yeah, and then Paul, this is Katie, and I also just, just, really would um, also add to that list, um, you know, things that are that are kind of more well known probably with regard to sexually transmitted infections among people who identify as, um, you know, as, as gay, if they uh, have a sex 
that is male. So, but largely though, kind of, you know, men who have sex with men and or transgender people. So I would include them in that category as well as being at higher rates of things like sexually transmitted infections, including HIV. Even though the state of Iowa does not have a lot of HIV as compared to some of our other states, even some in, some of our neighbors, um, you know, it's, it's, it's still something that I feel like we have a lot more opportunity to be prescribing pre-exposure prophylaxis. So that once a day HIV medicine that can prevent HIV, um, that there are still definitely patients that have never heard of it. And we know that we have a lot of providers who don't feel like they either have enough um, uh, medical knowledge that they can prescribe it and or they don't feel like they have sort of the resources in place where they feel like they can kind of competently spend the time that's needed to be able to make that a reality for some patients. So I think that there's still a lot of work to be done and a lot of opportunity that we can do to keep our patients that are at highest risk for things like HIV um, safe. You know, along those lines, uh, one question I had in my, my head was, are there misconceptions or misunderstandings that you think we need to correct? Maybe, you know, among clinicians, educators, advocates, prevention workers, anybody else? I, um, I think that, that some of the miscon misconceptions um, out there around things like STIs would just be some of those assumptions that are made. And so even when we really talk about cisgender folks, so folks who have the, the sex assigned at birth that aligns with their gender identity, um, and even if those people are in a heterosexual relationship, that the assumption is that they're monogamous um, and that the assumption is that they may be low risk for any types of STIs, that we often as healthcare providers rely on someone's relationship status to then kind of drive how we evaluate their, their, their risk for any type of sexually transmitted infection. And their relationship status is really just a piece of the puzzle. So I advocate for for um, really thinking about sex and in, in someone's sexual identity in a much more comprehensive and holistic manner. Um, and so this means really taking a great sexual history and um, knowing and understanding how your patient may be at risk and then being able to appropriately provide screening tests and anticipatory guidance to keep them safe. There's no such thing as safe sex, but there is safer sex. And there are many tools in that toolkit and we need to make sure that we're letting patients know about all of those, including things like HIV prophylaxis. If it is somebody who identifies as, or kind of has a sexual behavior that would include MSM, men who have sex with men, or I would argue anyone um, who identifies as a trans or non-binary person and maybe having sex with someone who's in that higher risk cohort. Um, another thing, this is Max. Um, well, I think there are like two um, stereotypes or assumptions that I interact with a lot. And the first, I think, has to do with general health, health outcomes. But the assumption is that um, all LGBT people, like when the average Iowan thinks of an LGBT person, they think of a white person um, and often think of like a middle class person and often aren't thinking about trans folks. And so I think um, understanding um, 
the, the you know the core tenet of intersectionality and understanding um, that you know what intersectionality means is that people are made up of a lot of different intersecting identities that are either privileged or oppressed. And so I think better trying to meet the health needs of LGBTQ folks um, that are uh, Black, Latinx, um, and Native American or Indigenous American is really important, but also paying attention to how um, access to uh, education or higher education impacts health outcomes, and then also um, you know, income level as well. Those things all play a part, and I think if we're only looking at the fact that someone's LGBT, but we're not paying attention to if they have a GED or not, those things, um, they really need to be um, brought together to really get a good picture of what some someone's health risks or health outcomes might look like. Um, but I can also along those lines, the other assumption I interact with so often is that there's like one real way to be like trans or transgender um, and that every trans person wants um, hormones and surgeries will change their name and pronouns. Um, and uh, I really hope that as we move forward, folks understand that there are a, a beautiful and vast different array of ways to be trans and every trans person is going to need different care um, and uh, you know a different kind of individualized approach to their journey. And so if more um, providers um, knew that, I think that that would be really helpful because it's less about knowing what all of those different experiences might look like and more about knowing what the client right in front of you needs too. You know, what you said, Max, reminded me of that WHO definition of health that I started with, that it's multidimensional. There's all these things happening all at once. People hold multiple identities. It's not just your sexuality or just your gender identity, but all of these things all, all at once that are, that are happening that we have to keep in mind. So thanks. Now, let me let me shift just a bit to the last uh, area that I wanted to pick your brains about, and that's getting into action steps. Um, so this to me is very much in mind with my public health training, where I was taught that once we discover a problem, we, we're compelled to do something about it. So what are some of the things that we could do? Um, and, and you could be creative or uh, as imaginative as you like, but uh, if you wanted to change anything, say programs, policies, other sort of intervention ideas, what might we do to improve LGBTQ health? I, I think that some of the things that we need to really think about with LGBTQ health, um, and, this, and this harkens back somewhat to what Max was saying about social isolation, is that it's just not true that LGBTQ plus people live in urban environments only. Um, you know, specifically here at the University of Iowa Healthcare in Iowa City, our administrators felt like our LGBTQ clinic would probably have patients because we live in Johnson County and, and this tends to be a place where there's lots of gay and lesbian folks and they thought there's probably lots of trans folks. But the reality is, is that 70 to 80% of our patients travel to see us from outside of Johnson County. And they're coming to see us from rural Iowa. Um, and they're coming to see us from places where they haven't been able to obtain culturally competent health care from their local providers. So I think that one of, the, one of the things that we really need to think about to be able to better serve these populations is figuring out how do we provide care to folks in their 
primary locations. And we are at an age right now, we're doing this, this great podcast over, you know, a, um, a video chat service where we can see each other and we can talk and hear and, and do that type of thing. Um, and that we need to think about medicine and think about healthcare in some of those same ways where it may not be that you physically have to be in the same room as your patient or your client, but you can still provide them with a service that they then can access a little bit easier without having to, to drive there and have the expense of travel without having to potentially take the day off of work where we can help patients stay in their place where they live and, and have that same access. So being able to provide that healthcare across all of our states and into you know, every pocket and corner of those, um, I think can be a really important thing that will, that will change folks' health status. And then um, I, I would also have to say that, um, that kind of back to, to one of my first issues with the inability of many transgender and, and non-binary folks who, who feel like they need procedures and or surgeries to treat their gender dysphoria. And just with, you know, with the, with the little asterisks there, kind of like Max said, that this doesn't pertain to every trans person. There are some trans folks who don't at all need um, surgeries or procedures to treat the dysphoria that they have. But for those who do, um, being able to really figure out how we can provide them with those necessary, you know, procedures or surgeries and or sometimes it's, it, it maybe can't be that, but maybe it's, you know, chest binders for folks who identify as transmasculine. Um, you know, maybe it's makeup kits and makeup lessons and, and just some of those things that can really help people transition socially and or help them have less dysphoria with their bodies when just relying on their insurance company to come through and to pay for those services, we will continue to be waiting for a while. I can't predict the future. I wish that I could and that I could tell you that I think, you know, by year X, all of these things will be covered and, and paid for and we won't have this issue. But until then, I think that it would be amazing if we could have more community orgs or more nonprofits coming to the forefront and saying, this is our whole deal. We will accept donations and we will help trans people have surgeries to treat their dysphoria and to improve their mental health and to really improve their quality of life. All right, thanks. Um, you know, another thing that I think of too, um, yeah, I think that the, you know, just like Dr. Borg said, like, it can't be understated how important it is, those little things. Um, one thing I try to make sure I talk to folks about that are maybe starting, for example, hormone replacement therapy, it's their first time um, seeing a doctor for that. Um, I think sometimes for those that would like to pursue hormones or surgery, um, that's great. And it's really cool that they're taking those steps. Um, but I also find that sometimes they think that, um, 
that that will be able to, you know, fully change them overnight. Um, and so sometimes it's the coping and the waiting and the, the process of working with insurance that can be really frustrating. And so I also think um, talking with folks that you're working with about um, how they take care of themselves, again, um, if they know where to find a chest binder, um, if they know how to start using makeup, if that would be affirming to them. Um, one thing that I interact with a ton is I work with folks that are looking for healthcare and mental health care, but right on right behind that, after those supportive services, they're also looking for like, where do I get laser hair removal that um, will support me as a trans feminine person? Uh, where can I go to get um, uh, my nails or my hair cut um, that understands who I am and isn't going to um, be discriminatory towards me? And I've spent whole afternoons helping folks in all different parts of the state try to find laser or um, you know different services that help them feel more like themselves in the moment and that can help them uh, cope a little bit, but also places that they can be fully them themselves. Um, and so I think that those services, we can't like um, underestimate the impact that having those kind of services in our communities um, can be um, and the ways that we, we train those folks to interact with people. Um, but I also think too, uh, you know, there's LGBTQ specific care, but then I also would hope that um, we would have doctors all across the state as well, that even if someone's just coming in for a strep test, they know how to talk about pronouns and they know how to talk to, you know, a trans patient without using their old name or their dead name when referring to them, right? So uh, kind of the understanding the different levels at which LGBTQ people need care and making sure that people have appropriate training um, in all of those different like levels. Yeah, thank you. So I, I'm going to include in the show notes links to the uh, LGBTQ clinic website at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics and to one Iowa. Um, so people have a place to go for some of these resources. But, you know, are there any other resources that you would recommend to listeners um, for whatever it might be, whether it's finding a healthcare provider, other services or resources? Are there other places that folks might go? Yeah, the Trans um, Lifeline is great. That was a resource I was going to recommend. And um, also, their website's been a little wonky recently, but the Trans Student Education Resource is wonderful. They are the group that developed the Gender Unicorn, which um, is a little bit more of like a 2.0 of the genderbred person, but um, that website's also just really um, uh, well-stocked with resources, and it was developed by trans people, which I think uh, helps. Um, and What's so the name of that again? It's uh, Trans uh, Student Education Resource, TC, or T-S-E-R. So one of the resources that I think could be really beneficial for anyone who's interested in maybe diving in and learning a little bit more about um, LGBTQ health is the National LGBTQ Health Education Center, which is a program of the Fenway Institute in Boston. They have amazing learning resources, including webinars, learning modules. They offer CEU and CME credit for them, um, and those are really a great resource. Another resource just in terms of finding providers would be WPATH, so WPATH.org, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. They have a provider directory on there um, where you can search by zip code or by state to find providers who are um, uh, members of WPATH and provide care for transgender patients. Another place that you can find uh, healthcare providers that have um, self-identified as 
providing competent care to LGBTQ plus people would be at glma.org, and that's the Health Professionals Advancing LGBTQ Equality. All right, these are some great resources. Thank you very much, and we'll include notes in the um, or in the show notes, links, and, and other descriptions so people can find them. You know, one of my final questions to you both is, um, for our listeners, what might be one or two easy steps that they could take to promote uh, good health, uh, whether it's individually or as a community for LGBTQ populations for sexual and gender minorities? One thing that I think about, and this is Max, um, but, uh, you know, my recommendation is, uh, and this will help folks in a lot of different areas, but of course, um, asking folks about pronouns and also mirroring folks' language back to them is really important. Um, finding new ways to talk about people in a gender neutral way can be really helpful. So one thing that I focus on, I'm working towards doula certification and um, uh, giving birth is one of the most gendered experiences that we have in our society. Um, and if we were to uh, change a lot of the way that we talk about uh, giving birth, for example, uh, to be more gender neutral. It would include folks that are trans or transmasculine um, that are also giving birth as well. So thinking about the, the gendered ways or the ways that we see the gender binary, aka um, men and women, masculine and feminine in our society and trying to uh, go into a more gender neutral uh, path with that, I think can be really, really helpful. And it's one of those very small and kind of covert ways that we can make LGBTQ people feel more safe and comfortable, um, whereas the average um, straight or cisgender person might not notice it, an LGBTQ person will notice the difference. Um, and then again, I think, um, uh, especially if you are a straight or cisgender ally, uh, constantly asking and advocating for LGBTQ specific services, um, because so often, you know, the reason that we have uh, clinics pop up or people get interested in this is because a, a lot of different people from a lot of different areas are advocating for those kind of services. And so even if it's not um, uh, a game that you have skin in, like uh, trying to advocate for that and recognize that uh, that is really, really important um, is going to speak um, volumes um, above what the average LGBT person could say, um, having straight and cisgender allies that are willing to do that hard work uh, is paramount. And I would add two more really concrete things that folks could do um, to improve the healthcare and the, the experience of LGBTQ plus folks. And that would be um, one, just to take a look at any kind of intake forms that you may have as part of your organization. And so this may be electronic or it may be paper-based, but really look at those and try to make them as gender inclusive as possible. If you can, leave some free text for people to be able to self-identify. And if you can't, then be inclusive with those terms ask about someone's sex assigned at birth and also ask them for their gender. Ask them for their preferred name, not their legal name, or both. Ask them what their pronouns are. Um, so that, that would be one thing that, that I think is, is important. And like Max said, many of these things, it doesn't make a big difference to folks who are straight and cisgender. We get this question a lot, oh gosh, but how's the 72-year-old farmer from Kelowna gonna feel about that? You know, they're not actually going to notice. 
Um, but those folks who identify as LGBTQ, they are on the lookout for the smallest sign that might convey to them that this is a welcoming and a safe place. The other thing would be to really think about any of your single stall bathrooms. There is no need to have a gendered single stall bathroom. If you have a single stall bathroom, it should be a restroom that is available to folks of all genders. And I think that again, that is a small thing um, that it seemingly doesn't make a big difference to many people, but it can make a huge difference to folks who identify as transgender or non-binary. Those are some really good concrete direct suggestions of things people could do. And it really strikes me that they're all about creating uh, a welcoming, affirming, inclusive environment. So thank you. And you know, with that, I think that brings us to the end of our, our discussion. I wanna thank you both for taking the time to chat with me today. We've covered a, a lot of ground. There's a lot more, um, but in our limited time here of our episode, um, we've covered you know, who we're talking about, what we mean, um, what the, the health concerns are, and, and a lot of really good concrete things that we could do to promote better health for our LGBTQ community members. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Special thanks to Rima Afifi, Ann Crotty, Alejandro Scoto, Paul Gilbert, Casey Ginn, Mike Honig, Kathleen May, Felicia Pieper, Melissa Richland, Hannah Schultz, and Lori Wachner. Theme music for Share Public Health is composed by Dave Hoeing and Roger Heilman. Funding for this webinar is provided by the Health Resources and Services Administration. Please see the podcast notes for an evaluation and transcript.